This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. On today's show, we continue our conversation on PISA. Last week, Bob Lingard walked us through the history of the OECD's work in education and compared the main PISA test with the new service called PISA for Schools. Today, Keita Takayama provides a critical reading of the so-called PISA debate. This debate started in May 2014, when a group of scholars published an open letter in the Guardian newspaper to Andreas Schleicher, the head of the OECD's Education and Skills Division. This letter criticized PISA. Two subsequent response letters were published in the Wall Street Journal, responding to the open letter and critiquing PISA in ways left out in the original letter. Keita Takayama, a professor at the University of Queensland in Australia, takes us through the arguments in these letters. By looking at who wrote the letters, Professor Takayama scratches the surface of the arguments to locate hidden agendas. In the end, he sees the so-called PISA debate as provincial. Keita Takayama, welcome to Fresh Ed. Oh, thanks very much for having me. In 2014, a group of academics and teachers wrote a letter to Andreas Schleicher, who's the head of the Education and Skills Division of the OECD, and who is almost synonymous with uh, the PISA test, uh, criticizing PISA, in fact. Um, Who wrote this letter, and what did they say? So the open letter was authored by two individuals. They are Heinz Dieti Meyer, He's a professor at the SUNY State University of New York, Albany. And the other author is Katie Zahedi. He's a principal at Linden Avenue Middle School, upstate New York. And this letter was basically authored by these two lead uh, authors and then endorsed by, in total, 84 signatories. And what did the letter um, say? So there are, I think there are five key criticisms of PISA that they lay out in the, in, the, in the open letter. The first one is that PISA has promoted standardized testing, teaching to test, and narrowing curriculum, and more multiple choice testing and scripted curriculum in school systems. And the second criticism they make is that PISA has promoted short-term solution to climb up the ranking quickly. And the third criticism they make is that PISA has now has sort of promoted narrowing focus on employability, and then they argue that this reflects the OECD's, OECD's interest in economic development. And the fourth criticism they make is that the ent- entire way in which the PISA has been uh, conducted it lacks the transparency in democratic participation. For example, why is that teachers and and parents, you know, are not invited to be part of the decision-making processes and so forth. And the last criticism, the fifth criticism they make, is, is that they are concerned about the increasing role of uh, multinational edu business in in the uh, in the design of the PISA as well as the operation of the PISA. So these are the sort of a key criticisms that they develop in the open letter. And they concluded by saying that PISA should not be implemented any longer? Any longer. So the PISA needs to be immediately suspended until all these issues that they highlight are sorted out. Uh, Across the globe, in every country where PISA is done? That's correct, yes. Okay. About a year later, in March of 
2015, two other scholars responded to this open letter. Um, what did this letter say and who wrote this letter? So the response was made by uh, Patsy Selberg and Andy Hargreaves, uh, two education scholars. Both are based in uh, United States currently. Uh, so the uh, response was entitled, The Tower of Pisa is Badly Leaning, an argument for why it should be saved, which was published in Washington Post, Washington Post in March uh, 24th, 2015. So in this uh, response, basically they say that you know, they agree with the criticism about Pisa, uh, but the Pisa has also done some many good things for students and schools and societies around the world. And then they argue that they, these good things should be rec uh, acknowledged. So what are the good things? Uh, they uh, basically highlight three good things that PISA has done to so societies and you know, educational systems around the world. The first one is that uh, PISA has helped countering what they call GERM, that is a global education reform movement. So what they mean by that is that the, there's, an, there's, an, uh, there's an education reform movement on a global scale happening that is guided by this quasi-market uh, principle of you know, school choice, competition, accountability, standardized testing. So all these sort of uh, uh, what, what, we, what we call neoliberal education reform which some would argue originate from primarily from the United States and the UK, now globally disseminated. But PISA has actually helped us, or people around the world, to question this neoliberal education reform and then help us to sort of develop alternative reform movements. So that's one positive that they highlight. And then, I guess, as an example of the counter-reform movement, they talk about what they call the Finnish way, the Finland. So the PISA actually helped us to uh, 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 identify, uh, I guess, uh, educational systems in the world that, are, that had, had not been uh, uh, recognized up to that point. And uh, they talk about Finland and Canada. And in these countries, they argue that the kind of education reform that we see in the United States and UK are not there. Basically, there's no much emphasis on school choice, competition, and standardization of curriculum and so forth. So something else is going on in Finland and Canada. So the fact that we now know what's happening in Finland and Canada is that one of the one of the positives or a positive outcomes of uh, PISA. And another thing that they talk about as a positive outcome, PISA, is that uh, PISA does have certain focus on equity issues. And they argue that OECD has become a strong advocate of equity in education by reminding policymakers that the highest performing education system, that is basically an Ontario education system in, in Canada and Finland, as an example. So these education systems combine quality with equity. So in some countries, PISA actually has helped them to bring equity back on a policy table. So these are the sort of uh, uh, positives that they highlight uh, as a result of PISA. So to them, Salberg and Hargreaves, the problems are the following. Uh, 
First, uh, many countries actually fail to treat PISA as just one of many indicators. So they are also concerned about the uh, many countries try to uh, climb up the uh, PISA league tables as quickly as possible. And then they argue that the PISA needs to be treated as just one of many indicators that the government can look at. And the government need to stop short-term solutions and global academic horse race. And Salberg and Hagaris are also concerned about the increasing edu business involvement in the operation and design of, of, of uh, or PISA. And they are also particularly concerned about the uh, Andrea Schleicher's uh, um, endorsement of uh, American uh, Common Core Stand Start State Standard Initiative, which is has been uh, quite controversial in American context, and he, they think that it's wrong for someone like Andrea Schleicher, the director of OECD Education Division, to 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 be explicitly endorsing. Uh, a particularly controversial education policy in American context. So these are the sort of issues that the uh, Salberg and Hargreaves highlight. So, and they conclude that PISA has problems, but it shouldn't be dismantled. It needs to be reformed. That's that's the conclusion, yes. And then a month later, a third letter appears in the Washington Post, um, basically saying that PISA should be dis- dismantled. Who, who wrote this letter and what did it say in detail? So this, uh, I guess, refutation of the previous letter was uh, written by Harris and Zell. Uh, it was published in the Washington Post, uh, 19th of April, 2015. Basically, they are trying to refute the uh, rather uh, positive appraisal that the Salberg and Hargreaves uh, have made earlier by saying that, look, um, PISA completely disregard the historical, social, economic, cultural context and how they impact on student performance. So it's actually not that useful. And um, for example, they are, I think this was Zhao, Zhao in particular is concerned about the fact that East Asian countries, for example, achieve enormous success in PISA. And oftentimes, their success are explained in terms of particular policies and programs that they have implemented. But he would argue that, look, it's the historical cultural factors that are driving their success. Namely, it's the test craze and high academic pressure in those countries that are, that are contributing to their success in a major way. So it is wrong and inaccurate to identify certain features, systemic features of their education system as if they are the, uh, they are the um, uh, factors that, that have led to their PISA success. So therefore, uh, because PISA doesn't allow us to identify any specific programs and uh, policy features that have contributed to uh, successful countries' uh, outcomes, it is actually inaccurate. That it, it actually doesn't doesn't it doesn't allow that doesn't allow doesn't allow us to factor in historical cultural context of education and the 
success of some countries. So it is very dangerous to sort of romantically talk about successful, successful PISA countries, not just East, East Asian countries, but also Finland and Ontario, those two countries that the uh, Hargreaves and, uh, Hargreaves and uh, Salberg talk about. Uh, so from uh, Zhao's point of view, for example, it's inappropriate to talk about those PISA successful countries when in fact their success can be explained uh, in terms of cultural historical factors as opposed to policy program, specific policies and programs. This open debate that's been happening in, in newspapers since 2014, you argue uh, each of the letters, each of the authors make certain unspoken assumptions in their arguments. What sort of assumptions do you find in these letters? Yes. Um, so I have been closely following this debate uh, for the last uh, two to three years, but I've always been uh, slightly uncomfortable with the way the debate has been developing. And I think, as you pointed out, there are certain unspoken assumptions in, embedded in the debate. And the first assumption I want to talk about is the fact that they seems to assume rather unproblematically, in a very uncomplicated way, the effect of OECD and PISA on national and subnational education policy making, as if there's a co there's a direct correlation between what's what's tested in PISA and what gets implemented on national and subnational education policy. Um, so, so, for example, um, the open letter authored by the uh, Heinz Mayer, the Eddie Heinz Mayer and uh, Katie Zahari, uh, they seems to argue that the uh, the kind of negative effect of standardized testing that we know that that's basically you know narrowing curriculum teaching for te teaching to the test and uh, all those you know the negative consequence of testing is now seeing in educational systems in across the United States as a result of PISA. So one would have to question whether or not that's actually happening in the United States and elsewhere. And uh, even those who criticize the open letter, that is the, the Salberg and uh, Hargreaves, they seem to uh, accept this um, um, uh, direct impact of a uh, Finnish way or, or counter-reform counter movement against uh, germ, the global education reform movement. That is, for example, they talk about how the kind of exemplary practices and policies identified in Ontario, Canada, and Finland are now spreading around the world. So again, there is an assumption of uncomplicated uh, processes of international or transnational knowledge transfer from one context to another as if how, you know, what happens in Finland and how they are talked about is now shaping uh, education policies and programs elsewhere. So that's one, to me, one big uh, assumption that, that seems to be underpinning the debate. And the second assumption I want to talk about is the fact that the whole debate seems to be driven by a particular concerns and policy issues that are specific to American context. I remind you that all the people that, that we've sort of reviewed up to this point, those people who participated in the debate are U.S.-based 
they might not they might not necessarily be Americans, but they are uh, affiliated and based in affiliated with and based in American uh, uh, research or educational institutions. And I think to a great extent, the kind of critique of PISA, for example, as expressed in open letter, reflect the particular policy concerns and issues uh, of the United States, not necessarily reflecting uh, the actual consequence and effect of PISA in different parts of the world. So to me, these are the major underpinning assumptions of the debate that needs to be carefully critiqued. So what would be an example of where the PISA effect is mediated through domestic actors instead of simply being, you know, global best practices being transferred from one place to another without any consequence at all of of the national actors. Right. So I'll give you two examples here, drawing upon my own work out of Japanese context. Uh, for instance, in uh, when the uh, result of PISA 2003 came out, so which was uh, December 2000, uh, uh, December 2004. So when the PISA 2003 came out, uh, there was a major, major uh, shock and a crisis in Japanese education. So what happened was that uh, the ranking of Japan in reading literacy dropped considerably and from the 8th in 2000 to 14th in 2003. And the drop was statistically significant. But also uh, oh, there was a ranking drop of Japanese students in uh, mathematical literacy as well from the 1st in 2000 to the 6th in 2003 and the drop was so mathematics has three components within it and the first two components there's no statistically significant drop it was only in the last section of the mathematical literacy where a statistically significant drop was registered so despite that the 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 drop from the first to sixth seems like seems like a significant drop but from a statistical point of view which was not the source statistically significant drop. Anyway, so there was a ranking drops in uh, mathematical literacy and reading literacy for sure. And then what happened was the, the minister at the time uh, really capitalized upon that uh, ranking drops to, to basically initiate uh, a set of highly contested education policies at the time, one of which was to implement national achievement testing, scholastic testing. And Japan has such a long history of political contestation over uh, uh, scholastic achievement testing in the past, and the introduction of national testing was considered to be highly, highly politically charged and contested. Uh, but he was able to use this sort of a crisis atmosphere in the immediate aftermath of the PISA 2003 release in order to justify the interaction of this highly controversial uh, policy. Then what happened was that in that test, his emphasis was much more on competition and basics. So Japanese students need to learn more academic basics and they need to compete with each other. And along with the national testing, which was introduced in 2007. So even earlier than 2007, the government introduced this policy called 
uh, morning reading time, morning reading hours. Basically, kids are asked to do, spend at least half an hour every day before class begins, spend half an hour reading books. So presumably, this was in response to the uh, ranking drop in reading literacy. But the thing is that any of these measures that are introduced in response to the PISA result, in particular the you know, ranking drop in reading literacy, do not seem to help students improve their scores in reading literacy. Because asking students to do more reading doesn't really help them to do reading literacy scores. For them to be able to do well in on the reading literacy, uh, in PISA, they are to be able to be, they are to be introduced to different set of questions, very different from the sort of conventional Japanese literacy practice. And also, forcing students to compete with each other and uh, putting more emphasis on academic basics doesn't really help them achieve better in PISA either, because PISA is really about application of knowledge and skills as opposed to factual recalls and so forth. So none of the policies that were immediately introduced in response to this PISA crisis in 2004 uh, do not seems to uh, do not do not seems to be closely aligned with the uh, sort of a curricular orientation of PISA. So therefore, this is one example where so what's what's promoted by PISA isn't really translated into the policies and programs on a national uh, education system level. It was, it was the domestic actor who used PISA to advance uh, the agenda that he or she wanted. Yes, and then those agenda are not closely aligned with PISA at all. Right. And I, I could give you another example, again, drawing upon Japanese case here. So I looked at the way in which so Finland became a national sensation in Japan. A lot of policy makers and bureaucrats, you know, and the education scholars and educators flocked to Helsinki to learn about the secret of Finnish success, right, uh, after the uh, you know, first two rounds of PISA. Just like, not just in Japan, everywhere around, in, in many countries, a lot of, um, you know, people... Uh, basically did a pilgrimage to Helsinki to learn about the secret. And what happened in Japan, uh, so what I did uh, was that I looked at the, the way in which uh, Finland, fin Finnish PISA success was represented in the media. So I basically read every single, tried to read every single articles in, in journal articles and in newspaper articles about Finland and explaining why Finland was so successful in PISA. And I looked at, I, I saw a close pay attention, I paid close attention to different way in which Finland education was represented by along the political line. So first of all, uh, those in on the uh, center left political line, so they they tend to talk about Finland a lot, but in a very specific way, and oftentimes they say. Well, Finland actually learned, the success of the Finland is because they learned from Japan. And they particularly highlighted two uh, institutional features of Japan and, what, and, and, and that they argue that that's what Finland learned from us. And the first one is the fundamental law of education, which was under serious criticism at the time and which was eventually uh, revised in 2006. 
But at the time, uh, some some argue that oh, Finland learned from the egalitarian and democratic nature principles of fundamental law of education of Japan, and so the argument was that well, the the greatest education system in the world actually learned from this fundamental law of education, and why are we trying to revise it? Why are we trying to change? Right. So in a sense, the representation of Finland and Finnish piece of success was utilized to to counter the criticism or movement at the time, conservative political movement at the time, to revise this policy. And another example was that another uh, Japanese key feature that the uh, people on the political left and center, the center left talked about, is the 6366 uh, single-track education system, which was again under attack at the time. And it presumably, Finnish education learned from this single-track 633 single-track education system of Japan to create egalitarian education system. So, so that's how center-left people articulated or represent Finland. But on the other hand, people on the center-right right, presented very different, almost contrasting representation of uh, Finland's piece of success. So in their mind, Finland is characterized by deregulation, standardized testing in a competition, and decentralization. So these representation, this representation of Finland education obviously helped them help them uh, legitimize the kind of education reform that they want to see in Japan that is much more, you know, market-oriented competition and standardized testing and so forth. So, as you can see, in the case of Japan where, um, you know, Finland became a national sensation, the Finnish way has become a projected screen upon which any, any sort of, any desirable images of any desirable uh, reform measures can be uh, projected upon. Um, so here again, how national media mediates the information and data that's generated by international organization like OECD, and then in a way that is almost, uh, you know, completely unexpected. And uh, so the argument that I'm making is that the data and information that OECD and PISA uh, generate is always mediated, always acted upon by domesticating agents such as education scholars and journalists and pundits and the media, most importantly, to generate effects that is com that is not necessarily not necessarily aligned with, uh, you know, uh, what's intended by OECD and PISA. Right, so the the PISA power isn't so straightforward and unproblematic. No, uh, I would even argue that PISA can only exert its influence only when its data and information are acted upon by the kind of domesticate domesticating agents that I mentioned. And then, therefore, it will it the power will look different in different countries at different moments in time. That's correct. Yes. So let's let's step back from the. Um, intricacies of the debate and talk more broadly. Um, for instance, the open letter argues that we see uh, a homogenizing effect in education policy around the world. Do you think this is true? Uh, to a certain extent, uh, there is, there's, there's no doubt that PISA does exercise uh, influence on education policy around the world. 
But the question is whether or not the, ter the, the term homogenizing is the right word to use. Uh, to me, that's an over overstatement. Uh, certainly, PISA has considerably influenced the way in which we talk about education. And uh, PISA does help us in terms of uh, uh, with the use of data and now how data nowadays become so central uh, in our decision making uh, edu around education. But at the same time, it is highly questionable to what extent the, the, the impact of PISA is, can be so straightforwardly understood. Uh, as I mentioned, the effect of PISA is always subject to political manipulation and contestation. So there's always a room for uh, maneuvering by domesticating actors. Uh, so on one hand, I think the way in which we talk about education has certainly shaped by PISA and other international agencies. But at the same time, uh, you know, a political agent within the domestic, within a national context, such as Ministry of Education, for example, does maintain considerable power over over the data and information that international agents create, and they are in a position to determine what sort of impact that those data and information might generate uh, on a national debate and education system. Why do you think a group of U.S. scholars or U.S.-centric scholars wrote a letter about PISA in 2014 when the test has been around since the early 2000s and hasn't really made that big of an impact on, at least in the media in the U.S.? What happened in the U.S.A. basically in the last several years? Thanks for asking the question. I think that's the crucial question. The question of why now? You know, as you pointed out, PISA has been around over... You know, 15, 10, 15 years, and the U.S. has been part of the testing from the get-go. And why suddenly? And many scholars has has mentioned has 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 you know has looked at the silence of U.S. U.S. media, U.S. academics uh, about the PISA. Up until 2011 or 10, hardly any media reporting on U.S. performance in in PISA. So no one cared. No one paid attention to the American students' performance in PISA. And it was all of a sudden in 2013 and 14, suddenly there's a, uh, there's a considerable rise of interest in the U.S. So we want our, one ought to be asking, why now? And to me, this has a lot to do with what happened domestically in American context. Uh, what happened? Um, um, so there was in 2009, uh, President Obama announced this race to the top. Uh, basically, this is a federal funding for uh, state initiatives. But in that, uh, states are encouraged to um, develop their programs around common standards and assessment plans. And then we know that Pearson was involved in a common core state standards at the time. And then 46 states you know, in the in the application to raise to the top funding, uh, sign a contract with Pearson to develop uh, Common Core standards and develop their own assessment plans. So, 46 states, and the first one was in New York State in 2013. So, it was around the time that Pearson was was started playing an important role in American education reform at the state level. 
getting involved in the development of common cores and uh, relevant assessment assessment tools and uh, educational services that enable state governments state governments to implement what what they promised they would uh, what they promised they will implement in the application to you know raise to the top and it was around the time that the connection between Pearson and uh, 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 connection between Pearson and OECD became much more clear to many American observers. For example, it has become known that Schleicher, Andrea Schleicher, the director of the OECD Education Division, uh, sits on the advisory board to Pearson. And uh, in 2013, in a PBS interview, he explicitly endorsed Common Core state standards. And uh, immediately after the uh, release of the PISA 2013 data, OECD uh, stated, here I quote, a successful implementation of the Common Core standards would yield significant performance gains also in PISA. So what's happening here is that this highly contested initiative, that is the uh, Common Core State Standards Initiative, it's highly contested in two senses. First, as I mentioned, there's a private corporation involved in the development of core, Common Core initiatives. So that's highly pr problematic. But also, this is a state, it's a federal initiative. So oftentimes, this is construed as a federal imposition of education policy onto what is con traditionally considered to be a state prerogative, that is a state education system. So on these two grounds, the uh, Common Core State Standards Initiative has always been extremely contested and controversial. And in fact, there was a protest, a walkout uh, protest movement in New upstate New York in 2013. Many educators and uh, uh, many educators and parents and kids walk out of school as a form of protest. So, but the OECD, particularly Shulaiha, was getting more and more involved, supporting this highly contested policy measure in American context. So, in the eyes of the U.S. observers, there's a close connection between Pearson, private corporation, and OECD, represented by Shulaiha, and highly contested Common Core State Standards Initiative. So, if you go back to the open letter and a criticism PISA as expressed in the open letter, it's clear that the criticism was was driven by their domestic education context at the time. The particular concerns that they had about the common core standards and assessment tools introduced at the time and how Pearson was increasingly controlling educational system around the country in the United States. So what I'm highlighting here is that the, the debate around PISA, which has been defined as a global conversation, global debate, is actually has been quite provincial in the sense that debate actually strongly reflects the particular policy concerns and issues at the time in the United States. And it's also quite relevant here, the fact that the open letter was authored by two individuals who are 
who were based in upstate New York at the time when, where perhaps arguably the uh, Pearson's, uh, uh, sorry, Common Core state standards and Pearson's involvement educate in education policy was hardly contested and challenged at the time. So it's the state politics, the, the local politics that matter and can explain more about what's going on in these letters. That's my take, yes. So I have one final question, and this, this is a new feature that we're doing on FreshEd, where we solicit questions from Twitter. Um, and today's question comes from Noah Sobe, who uses the Twitter handle at Noah Sobe. His question to you is, does the academic research community make PISA out to be more politically influential than it is by virtue of our attention? I think it's a brilliant question. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm actually one of them, you know, who has been writing about PISA. So I, th I think I have to be sort of uh, reflective here about the role that I played in terms of either promoting or undermining the legitimacy of PISA. Um, I think there are different ways in which we can engage with PISA. Um, some scholars would try to use the data set that the PISA, uh, PISA makes available for secondary analysis. And some scholar has done a brilliant job highlighting, you know, education equity issues in, in some countries where data simply didn't exist around equity issues. So, but the, the irony of doing this sort of otherwise exceptional, exceptionally important work is that by using PISA data set, in a very indirect way, those researchers are actually validating and legitimizing the, uh, the kind of role that OECD plays, that is the provision, that is to provide data that other schools can use, as well as you know, putting together, um, you know, league tables and other things. So, in a sense, although the research itself is quite important and useful in many contexts, at the same time, by using the data produced by PISA, OECD, it actually legitimizes the role, international sort of a think tank role that OECD uh, wishes to play. Well, Keita Takiyama? Well, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks very much for your time listening. Keita Takiyama is an associate professor in contextual studies and education at the School of Education at the University of New England, Australia. Next week, I speak with Jason Beach about educational transfer. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes follow the show on Twitter using the handle at FreshEdPodcast. The opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.